I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, the kid stays in the picture. It's easy and lazy to still think of George P. Bush as Jeb's boy, W's nephew, the apple of Gampy's eye, as merely the heir to a political dynasty's fame and power. He's been a statewide elected official for more than six years now, twice chosen overwhelmingly by the voters of Texas to serve as their land commissioner, and therefore famous and powerful in his own right. He's 45, in other words, old, and he may soon climb a few rungs on the electoral ladder or attempt to, which is why he's my guest this week. Don't get me wrong, who doesn't love a good 35-minute conversation about coastal erosion? but I'm not sure even he wants to discuss his current job. For many months now, the drumbeats have been loud and persistent that Bush is looking hard at challenging the state's incumbent Attorney General, Ken Paxson, in the Republican primary next March. This hasn't been idle speculation. Bush himself has been the Gene Krupa of those drumbeats, repeatedly telling go-to conservative radio talk show host, Mark Davis, that he finds the incumbent lacking. Personally, I think that the top law enforcement official in Texas needs to be above reproach, he told Davis on April 8th. I think character matters and integrity matters. Last week, he returned to Davis's show to criticize Paxton's rumored lukewarm enthusiasm for Governor Greg Abbott's reelection prospects. Unlike Ken, I actually support Governor Abbott, and I think that he has done a heck of a lot more for the state of Texas than Ken ever will, he said. For Bush, whose brand is caution and congeniality to a fault, this is as close to a declaration of war as it gets. There are many questions to be answered on the road to 2022, chief among them whether Bush will actually pull the trigger. And if he does, whether the GOP's spirit animal, Donald Trump, will back Paxton, his 1-6 rally mate, or Bush, who twice endorsed him for president despite the way his father was manhandled in the 2016 primary. But for all practical purposes, game on. So it's a good time to ask what kind of candidate Bush would be, by which I mean what flavor of conservative he is. His surname conjures up memories of another world ideologically, but he's always been his own man, a couple of clicks to the right of his family. At the end of what is arguably the most rightward-leaning legislative session in years, how's he feeling about the state of the state? About the issues in play, from permitless carry of handguns and abortion restrictions to local control and changes to election law? What about the battle for the soul and control of his party? We covered all that and more when we talked on the morning of Monday, May 17th, day 126 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by the Jackson Walker Law Firm, whose attorneys have played a vital role in the growth and development of Texas business since 1887. And by the Mach 1 Group, an Austin strategic communications and public affairs firm empowering organizations and individuals to nail media attention, crisis response, and legislative and regulatory goals. 
Learn more at themach1group.com. And Texas 2036. A majority of Texans aren't attaining the skills employers seek. We need workforce policies that prepare Texans for continued success. More at texas2036.org. And Texas State Technical College. Now with 10 campuses across the state and 20 new 100% online programs, students can learn the skills necessary to start a great new career. More at tstc.edu. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Proud to support this conversation because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. So here I was ready to talk to you about the session and policy, some politics, and then late afternoon yesterday, like a pork chop dangled in front of a pit bull, my colleague Patrick Svitek passes along a copy of a flyer. George P. Bush campaign kickoff rally, June 2nd, at a bar on West 6th Street in Austin. There's a grinning picture of you next to the words, the next generation of conservative leadership. Okay, spill. What campaign? What kickoff? What's the deal? Well, um, I'm excited to, to launch a, a campaign that'll serve Texans and, and talk about the important issues that face our state. Uh, you'll be welcome. We'll make sure to invite you personally. Um, I've shared with the public on prior occasions, I'm taking a very serious look at a run for our attorney general, but I, I wanted to also provide deference to those in the legislative halls of uh, this session and uh, make that announcement after they've completed their work. Well, that's only two weeks from now, Commissioner. Surely you know what you're kicking off, right? Why don't you just tell me? I mean, you're obviously doing something. And I can't help but notice the words land commission and re-election are conspicuously absent from that flyer. Well, I mean, I think your your listeners and, and you can draw certain inferences and certain conclusions. Um, I've just decided that uh, um, I want to invest my free time outside of what I'm doing in the Capitol to um, spend more time with law enforcement, to spend time with human trafficking survivors, uh, Customs, Border Patrol, and other folks throughout the state. Um, as I mentioned, I've said publicly that I'm taking a deep look at uh, Attorney General, but I didn't want to make a formal announcement until after the important work before the legislative session for the next two weeks. Well, it sure sounds like you're running. Well, I'm definitely running for some, um, and you'll be one of the first to know. Um, I'd like to personally invite you and, and your team if you'd like to come out and maybe grab a taco. Well, I like uh, I like Buford's, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll see about that. Uh, look, let's let's bookmark that. We'll come back to it. So we are also two weeks out from the end of the session, right? The circus is getting ready to pull up stakes. What have you made of the last few months? Well, it's been a, a conservative legislative session, uh, to say the least, and one that I think um, has been good for the state. Um, it's changed and it's veered so many different times, unlike the the last three uh, in my time here at the land office. Mainly because if you look at this time last year with negative pricing of oil, you know we were told by uh, by the experts that uh, to expect a downsize of twenty percent of our staff's agency, we were going to have to let go of uh, a lot of our time honored professionals and make substantial cuts to our budget. And thankfully, because of the resilience of our economy, we're in a position where we now are looking at a surplus this yeah. this this session. So. 
that's taken a dramatic turn. With Winterstorm Uri, I think it, it brings the importance of having reliable infrastructure, an energy plan for a great state like ours to be uh, to be on the books and prepared for what I think a lot of experts pointed to, and that's just devastating summer heat. Um, so my hope is that legislators continue that effort. Um, and as I mentioned before, in terms of law enforcement, there were some problematic bills that were uh, brought to my attention, one of which I testified personally on, and that involves human trafficking in Texas, which is the largest, or I'm sorry, the fastest growing crime in our state. And so spent a lot of time with human trafficking survivors on their thoughts on what bills they needed help on, because a lot of them don't have seasoned lobbyists helping their efforts. And so uh, I was proud to help them in some of their issues. Yeah, I, I liked what you said at the beginning of this, that it was a pretty conservative session. I mean, I've been at the Capitol for 30 years, 15 sessions. This is the most conservative session, hands down, that I've seen. You said you've been at the Capitol for less time. You were elected in 2014, so this is your 15, 17, 19, 21, fourth session, right? You, you would agree. This is, a pr- this is a pretty conservative session, even by contemporary standards. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think on the heartbeat bill, that was... Uh, in, in several other initiatives, yeah. constitutional carry and others that were discussed in prior sessions, but never made its way to the governor's desk. And so, you know, those two are the the most looming. Um, you know, I think on voter integrity and ballot integrity, you know, that's been misconstrued in my opinion in terms of the the national debate. But important for Texans to make sure that its elections are are free, that they're transparent, and uh, that they're fair to to all Texans. And so. Yes, it's been a conservative one. It's not over yet. Um, I think we could always do better on the budget. I mean, people forget this is a, a quarter of a trillion dollars. This is a right. Then this would be the budget. second second consecutive budget at the at, at at that amount, which which is a lot. This is not a very spendy state, but it is an expensive state, right? We have a lot of people. We have a lot of issues. Got to spend something on those things, right? True. True. But but sizable and and one in which you know perhaps legislators. Um, could have taken a deeper look at and maybe learned a lesson from this past summer when you have uh, a difficult economic challenge before you that maybe government makes, needs to make some some cutbacks like uh, a lot of small businesses did during this time. Let me ask you about some of the issues you mentioned, because again, to the, to the point that this is a conservative session, there were a number of things that had frankly been discussed in previous sessions, but didn't get over the finish line. And although, again, a couple of weeks left, it looks like a number of them are going to get over the finish line. Let's start with permitless carry of handguns, which you mentioned. Um, you, you support this legislation. Correct. Okay. You also support the police commissioner. In fact, you spent much of last week, which was National Police Week, tweeting about how you back the blue. A lot of police groups do not support this legislation. Does it concern you that many of the blue you back don't back this bill? Well, that's an ongoing discussion that I think the lieutenant governor took the right direction on. And that's to say that, you know, we're not going to pass this bill without discussing this with relevant law enforcement agencies. And the groups that I've talked with aren't so diametrically opposed as it as it may appear out there. Um, a lot of them are for it because they view law abiding citizens as being a force multiplier for them, especially in rural areas of Texas, where we have seen active shooter situations with involving folks that are either CHLs, the concealed handgun license owners, and uh, most recently in the last legislative session, open carry folks that help to mitigate uh, gun violence. And so there are certain situations, certain parts of our state where law enforcement is on board. Others, it's going to take 
time. But if you recall, Evan, you know, the last session when we had open carry, people were saying, well, and including campus carry, that there was going to be mass violence in the streets. And, you know, frankly, that that hasn't occurred. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that law abiding citizens can be helpful to law enforcement. And in this case, I think this this example will, will shine through. Requ- requiring training, though, doesn't make this an even uh, more safe deal. I mean, I understand that and we would be one of a number of states that had permitless carry. But the, the question is, do you think that uh, licensing is too burdensome? Training is too burdensome. I think the state can offer free education, you know, similar to what we do for, say, hunting, yeah. um, you know, in Texas and, and offer that because I know, you know, all of my friends that are law abiding gun owners, they would take that time to just freshen up their skills. I mean, anybody would benefit from that. Uh, additional training. And I think that's the thinking behind the bill is that individuals are responsible enough to make that decision um, to either keep their guns locked in a safe and and not use it. Hopefully they'll be more responsible, get the training, clean their guns and be good gun owners and not ruin it for the rest of us. Uh, You mentioned uh, election integrity, ballot integrity. Can you tell me the problem we're fixing with this legislation, Commissioner? I I read in the Houston Chronicle at the end of last year, the voter fraud unit of the Texas Attorney General's office spent more than 22,000 staff hours in 2020, but only resolved 16 prosecutions, which was half as many as 2018. This is a good use of our tax dollars? So, you know, most of the cases that we've seen or potential cases would come from a variety of sources that perhaps flow outside of Attorney General prosecutions. Because Yes, the attorney general's office has original jurisdiction on these cases, but there's only four prosecutors that I'm aware of that are full-time employees devoted to this issue. So, Of course, they did beat, um, they did beat me, up the voter fraud unit during the last election, and apparently this is all they were able to produce. Correct. And, and, and that's a problem because this is the most important constitutional duty we all have, and that's the right to vote. And if there's a lesson learned from 2016 and 2020, it's that voters want predictability. They want uh, surety that their elections are going to be run freely, fairly, and based upon a transparent standard that people know before the primaries and before the general election. Um, So to me, we could devote a lot more than four prosecutors in the attorney general's office to this issue. But but in terms of the law that's being discussed in the Capitol, I mean, it's taking a look at simple things. First of all, unsolicited absentee ballots. I, I think we can all agree that Unless you ask for a ballot or you can actually show an ID um, that you shouldn't receive an unsolicited absentee ballot. Um, We need to do a better job in terms of expunging voter records to make sure that when people die, that they're no longer eligible to vote. In a highly transient state like Texas, where we have thousands of people moving here from, say, California on a daily basis, but yet thousands of Texans moving to other parts of the state, we need to re-examine and do a better job of collaborating between DMV records and county property records to make sure that, say, for example, a house in Austin doesn't have 20 registered voters um, attached to it. So there's a lot more that we can do with other states, and there's compacts that we've entered into as a state that allow us to cross-reference better. But the constituents I talk to whenever I, I travel around the state, they view this as probably a top three issue just making sure that every single vote is true 
and that it's difficult for those that when want to do wrong or in other words cheat um, make have more difficulties in doing it. But it's pre- being presented, Commissioner, as a response to something. Now there may be a generic desire out there, and everybody wants elections to be conducted fairly, right? So there's a generic view that that's the case, but it's being presented as a response to the last election where there have been allegations unproven of widespread voter fraud. For the record, do you believe there was widespread voter fraud in the last election? Well, I think that there was uh, fraud and irregularity. I just don't think that it was in a sum that would have overturned uh, the election result. So you, don't believe, why- you don't, yeah, so you don't believe the election was conducted in a fraudulent way, you know, there's, there, there continues to be a dividing line in your party and in this country over the question of whether the election was stolen. So do, do, you, do you believe the election was, was conducted fairly? I think that there was, again, in states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, Arizona, that there were some questions of law that have yet to be resolved. I think that there was examples of Fraud, but not to a degree to which it would have overturned the results of the election. So, the, that's election, why you're so seeing, the election was not stolen. Correct. And and that's why you're seeing a lot of state legislatures stepping forward and, and claiming their role. Um, and the role is to basically make sure that we have robust voting election systems so that nobody calls this into question. I would differ in terms of when this started. It, it, I think it started with, say, 2016, when there were doubts cast on President Trump being elected, saying that there was, you know, Russian meddling and influences. And but I don't remember any again, le- that's I don't remember why I say- legislation, though, in 2017 or 2019 in Texas. It's only in 2021. Well, and, you know, at the federal level, there was a robust discussion. And, you know, at, at the Congress, there was a, a vast amount of uh, investigations. And so, again, this is where the state's role is at least in my viewpoint, uh, when looking at this under the auspices of the 10th Amendment, that states are the ones that decide election law. And this is the appropriate time for states during their legislative sessions to re-examine how they administer their elections to create more uh, transparency and truth in the process. Uh, You mentioned the heartbeat bill earlier, uh, Commissioner. Uh, I I was going to ask you about that and about the decision by this legislature again, more successful than some previous legislatures in terms of what what appears to be legislation that will will pass into law. But now I'm suddenly less interested in that since we had breaking news from the Supreme Court this morning that they've agreed to hear a case coming out of Mississippi that could result in Roe versus Wade being overturned. For a guy who maybe wants to be attorney general, this is big news. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you you would support, if, if the court decided to overturn Roe versus Wade, you would be good with that. And you think that's good for Texas? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've always thought Roe v. Wade was uh, inappropriately ruled upon. Um, I've always felt that um, a lot of questions need to be decided at the state level. And, you know, we're a free country where if you don't agree with the values that are represented in your legislature and in your government leadership, perhaps you can think about residing somewhere elsewhere. But people are voting with their feet and moving here to Texas because of a reason. Um, a lot of it is economic, but a lot of it is because of the cultural values that we maintain here. So, um, I'm so clear on this, Commissioner, what you're saying is if there's a woman in Texas who believes in the right to an abortion and the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, and as a consequence of that, the legislature here 
says abortion will be illegal in the state, your response to that woman is move. Or potentially obtain the abortion in another state. But my hope and my prayer would be for her to to reconsider that and that there's all kinds of other options, including here in Texas, crisis pregnancy centers and others that allow an option other than, than that option. Uh, you mentioned that there's still a bunch of time left. Legislation is not yet done. We'll see what happens. One of the things that is still in play is restrictions on transgender students playing school sports based on their gender identity rather than their biological sex. Where do you come down on this issue? And do you think, with so many other things on the table, agenda items, that this should be a priority of this legislature? Well, certainly we've got a lot of you know priorities and, and problems to deal with in the state. This this one is an it's it's an equity argument, and a lot of parents, frankly, and I happen to be a parent of two boys. I mean, I just think that a lot of us view this as uh, is uh, is unjust and and just not just plain not fair in terms of uh, athletics. And so we we've seen this at the local level, and and it's important for the state to intervene when there's a patchwork of different um, of of standards that are applied. So I I would be supportive of that. Uh, bill as it makes its way through. I'm not sure where it stands, but um, but I'm hearing that at the community level quite a bit throughout the state. Okay. Uh, let me ask you about some stuff that didn't happen in this session. Uh, first of all, expansion of Medicaid. Um, I saw on Friday that we sued the administration over its decision to pull back the 1115 waiver that was approved right before President Trump left office. You agree with the decision to sue over that? Yeah, I mean, an agreement and a disagreement. Um, and I would hope that the administration would have upheld that agreement. Um, what if the approval, though, what if the approval did not honor the necessary comment period for the public? I mean, what I understand about the reason to pull it back is that there were some irregularities in the approval process. Well, certainly that could be resolved. And, you know, in terms of, you know, communication between White House and, and the state, you know, hopefully it would be robust enough to examine that as, as an option. Um, but. You know, that, that was an important uh, agreement for the state of Texas to manage uh, health care policy in, in the way that we see fit and, um, and an agreement that we structured before uh, the administration had changed. Let, let me ask you about the principle at work here. So in 2019, before the pandemic, 18.4% of Texans, 5.2 million of us had no health insurance. That's double the national average. We had job losses resulting from the economic downturn last year. That was estimated to have added another 659,000 to the uninsured rolls by last May. By last May, one year ago, 29% of non-elderly adults in this state had no coverage. According to something called the Bush School at Texas A&M, which I assume you've heard of, um, if if we expand Medicaid, 1.27 million Texans would be eligible for coverage. We'd be on the hook for 600 million. We'd get back 5.4 billion. A lot of people say that's a pretty good deal. What, what's the problem with expanding Medicaid if those numbers are right? And again, the Bush school's numbers, so I assume they must be perfect. In, in a real-time basis, but moving forward, there would be obligations to the state that we can't possibly project and would be subject to future administrative whims. And that, that's just kind of been the problem in this discussion is, is instead of viewing this as an opportunity to block grant this program to states and allow a legislature to design a healthcare policy that better addresses the uninsured or certain targeted populations, there's a one-size-fits-all approach and command from Washington, D.C. that Texans are just hesitant to take on. And so 
you know, several other states have structured it that way where they've had a successful model, whether it's Arkansas being one example where a state can and has the ability to work with an administration to block grant this out so we can tailor a solution better to meet our own needs. But, you know, in terms of just having insurance, that doesn't guarantee better health care. We also need to be more, more proactive in terms of preventative health care, whether that's taking on diabetes and, and health care or, or lung cancer, areas in which the, the individual can better uh, address the, the, the societal ills that we're seeing, or even drug abuse. Now, I think we, we've exceeded 90,000 per year in terms of opioid abuse uh, nationwide, and certainly we could do better preventatively um, to reduce the cost of care uh, in a state like Texas. If you're the AG, would you be suing to overturn the Affordable Care Act as your uh, potential challenger in the Republican primary the incumbent Ken Paxton has? Yeah, I would, I would carry that, carry that uh, litigation and that message on. Um, but again, this is an example of where a Congress needs to step forward um, and, and better, refine, better refine Obamacare and, and defer more to states like Texas to craft its own health care plan create its own exchanges, allow for exchanges to participate in other, other states' exchanges as well, driving down and lowering the cost of healthcare for uh, most healthcare provision is by employers um, here in Texas, private employers. So to the extent that we can spread risk, um, work better at the grassroots level for preventive healthcare, that would help to drive down costs um, in a state like ours. You mentioned the grid earlier, the response to the winter storm. Obviously, we had a year of cascading crises, Commissioner. We had the public health emergency on the front end, the winter storm on the back. Did the legislature do enough during the session to address the pandemic and to address the grid? I'm still trying to sort through exactly what they've done. Is it sufficient? Did they rise to the challenge? Well, on, on the pandemic, you know, what, what was really illuminating is, is legislative distrust of the, the governor. And the governor, you know, unlike the legislature, is at work in his office 24-7. I've had the honor and privilege of working with the governor in response to Hurricane Harvey. And and though I didn't have direct oversight or jurisdiction over the pandemic response, you you need to have an an executive that's working on behalf of the people of Texas and making decisions um, quicker than the legislature can. And so, you know, on the response, I I think that that's just been my only... Uh, observation is is legislative um, increase of their desire to to have more say, which which is understandable and natural from their side because they hear it from constituents. But, but you you would not have we, supported the bill uh, limiting the governor's powers during a pandemic. Correct. Yeah, I think that the governor. I think Texas would be better served to have an executive right. that's always on the ballot. Right. This is a democratically elected position that um, is judged based upon his or her response to a crisis. And this is a crisis unlike the unlike anything we've seen before, and you need a governor that can respond. You think he did a good job during the Governor Abbott we're referring to here, let's just name him, Governor Abbott. You think Governor Abbott did a good job uh, over the last year with all the different things that we faced? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, again, I've been behind the curtain working with him in response yeah. to Hurricane Harvey, worked very closely with, with Chief Nim Kidd, in prior crisis, because we respond in terms of federal block grants through HUD and FEMA, um, yeah. and I've asked Chief Nim Kid, what, how does how does the pandemic compare to hurricane response? And he said, "Well, Hurricane Harvey was child's play in comparison to this pandemic," and and that really speaks volumes to me that 
um, our emergency manager is, is using those types of, of terms. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. I think our, our state responded very well. I mean, we were the front end in terms of opening the economy, um, in terms of vaccination rollout and penetration. And you know better than anybody, Evan, this is a complicated state to, to, to operate in. I mean, you have rural, urban, suburban interests, vast geographies to deal with, uh, 254 counties and, and a variety of local entities you got to deal with. Absolutely. His response was great. And, yeah, well, and, um, have, and have we're benefiting. To, have you talked to your fellow conservatives about that? Because the, the, there are a number <laughs> of people who believe that the governor did not perform uh, uh, sufficiently, at least in terms of what are said to be conservative values. You've got Alan West, the chairman of your own party, of the governor's party, and Sid Miller, your fellow statewide elected Republican, protesting outside the governor's mansion. You've got Don Huffines, state senator, now announcing a primary challenge to, to this governor. What's going on here with that? <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say, you know, from the governor's perspective, he assembled a, a task force of private sector leaders and, and public sector leaders. Dr. Zerwas, Dr. Hellerstedt, uh, and Chief Nim Kidd, and took the best information he had available to him to make some tough calls. Look, you know, in leadership, you're, you're always going to be critiqued from, from all sides, and, and the governor was no exception. But in the final analysis, when you look at the data in terms of everything from vaccine penetration to businesses reopening to schools being back online, you know, our state is, is looking really good. Um, and so, of and course, you, there's think, be you think Greg Abbott is conservative enough. That's the point. Greg Abbott is Absolutely. conservative enough. Right. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor. You and Dan Patrick have been America's fun couple for a while now. <laughs> um, earlier this session, you appeared to make peace. How are you guys getting along these days? It's kumbaya. It's total kumbaya. Seriously? No, we, uh, absolutely. No, we... Uh, First meeting this legislative session, he called me into the office and we talked about the Alamo. We talked about the future of the state and uh, we're in a much better position. Look, uh, you know, we had our disagreements on the Cenotaph. And now that the THC, the Texas Historic Commission weighed in, yeah. you know, I think where he stands, where I stand and where Texans stand is time to move on and time to do and complete okay. the rest of the master plan. You so want to, in will, you endorse him? will you endorse him for re-election right now on this podcast? Yeah, if you ask for it, absolutely. No, I'm not asking you to have him ask for it. I'm asking you to endorse him. Will you endorse him? <laughs> yeah, I'll support him. I'll support the governor. They've been really good partners to okay. the general land office and to my agency. Okay, I get it. Um, hey, I interviewed your Uncle George not long ago. Let's turn our attention to some national stuff. He told me the insurrection at the Capitol on 1-6 made him sick to his stomach. What was your reaction to that? Absolutely. You know, I, I support peaceful protest. And once the peaceful protest turned into something violent, I think most Americans, safe to say most Americans would agree that it was a disappointing day for American democracy. Um, since we're a nation of rules and of laws, not of men, a lot of those um, perpetrators are now being prosecuted to the full extent of the law. So, you know, um, you know, I, I'm happy with where, where things are going. And my hope yeah. is, my sincere hope is that we have a president that can help unify us, that can work with the Congress to restore civics into American democracy. You remember that Ken Paxton spoke at the rally prior to the insurrection on 1-6. Would you have spoken at that rally? Did he do anything wrong speaking at that rally? Well, I, I'm not sure that 
folks that stepped on that platform knew exactly what was going to transpire. Um, and I can't speak on behalf on, on whether or not he would do it again. Um, I'm in terms you of, you, you know, no, I, I probably, you know, to be honest with you on Jan six, you know, I was getting ready for legislative session and getting ready for the state agenda. And I'm not sure that I could really add value to something along those lines. Look, I, I said from the beginning that any president or any presidential candidate has a lawful right to pursue every single avenue available to them in a relevant court. And then ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court can weigh in on those decisions. And once that decision is made, you know, I'm I firmly stand behind the Constitution. We have to be at peace with that. And, you know, if you're a partisan like myself, you work hard towards 2022 to make sure that we elect the right leadership to make sure um, that result doesn't happen again. Yeah. Uh, Lindsey Graham said last week, Commissioner, that the former president, former President Trump, is the leader of your party, that the GOP can't grow without him. Do you agree that he's the leader of your party? I do agree. He won 70 million votes. And right. I'm not a mathematician, but that's the most of any Republican ever. Um, he's brought in people from all backgrounds to the Republican Party. And so what I've been sharing with grassroots clubs throughout the state is, look, let's take that energy, put it in a bottle and leverage it for bigger margins. I mean, look at South Texas, Hidalgo County, Zapata County, which were almost um, taken by the Republican Party. I well, mean, in fact, that's, Zipata, in fact Donald Trump won Zapata County and Donald Trump won Val Verde County in the presidential election. I don't know that's ever happened before. A Republican has won those counties. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there, there's some good there politically, and that yeah. just has to be leveraged. Um, yep. And that electricity that he brought, we got to capture. Should he be the nominee in 2024? Speaking of endorsements, are you if prepared he, to endorse him? <laughs> if he chooses to do so, you know, there's there's a lot of work. Uh, ahead excuse me, if he chooses we get to, to run, if he chooses to run, you endorse him for president, no matter no matter who else runs. Correct. And we, you and I have had a conversation Correct. before about presidential elections and endorsements. If you're a member, about your dad. This is now many years ago. So <laughs> you're, you're saying, regardless of who runs. If President Trump runs again, he should be the nominee. Correct. He's a leader of the party, and it's really in his it's in his hands. Okay. Um, so and, and he has to evaluate a lot, right? I mean, he has to evaluate if it's good for him, if it's good for um, his businesses, if it's good for the party. Um, and I imagine he's looking at that very closely. But you but think it would I'm be sure good right now. You think it would be good for yeah. the party and good for the country? Yeah, I mean, again, 70 million votes is nothing to to sneeze at. This is this was a tight election, either way you look at it. Right. And um, he brought us some some good margins in Texas. So um, obviously, there's some areas where we need to work, um, but overall, he's the leader. All right, two quick questions before we go. You've already said you're not going to tell me about your June 2nd decision on the AG's race, although obviously you've made the decision, whatever it is. But you have talked to Mark Davis and others about the fact that you're considering running and you've made a case or begun to sketch out a case against Ken Paxton should you run. My understanding is you don't have a problem with what he's done in the job substantively. You would do everything he's done substantively. Is that right? Well, there would be some tweaks in the office um, based upon my preliminary analysis. But the, the problem, Evan, is not the message, it's the messenger. I mean, we've right. got so an talk, indicted felon. Talk about that. Felon. Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, we've got an indicted felon as the top law enforcement official in Texas. I mean, I don't care what party you're in, but that's that's just disgraceful. How is he, how is he a uh, felon, uh, Commissioner? He's not a felon until he's convicted, right? 
Well, he's an indicted felon. He's indicted right now in Harris County with two counts of securities fraud. Right. And, you know, this is securities law, by the way, is the area of oversight that he had when he was in the Senate. So he can't claim ignorance of the law. Um, but but he's under the investigation Republican the voters, Re- Republican voters in 20, uh, uh, the first time Ken Paxton was elected, Republican voters knew that he had issues. Dan Branch was only happy to tell people his campaign were only, you know, only happy to tell people voters knew who Ken Paxton was and they've now chosen him twice. Despite that. Well, he's never had a serious challenge, at least since Dan Branch. And he's going to get he's potentially going to get a serious challenge this uh, this summer. Well, you, you almost slipped there, Commissioner. I'll just say you, you, you did good getting that back. Um, <laughs> so uh, Patrick Svitek has a story today asking what role, if any, Donald Trump would play in a primary. Have you talked to the former president about the AG's race? Not directly. Uh, I've reached out to members of his team. And, um, you know, indications are that, you know, he wants to put the best football team on the field in 2022. And, you know, the fact is Republicans have had an unbroken streak since 1998. And, you know, people forget Ken won with, he was the lowest vote getter in 2018 uh, among Republicans um, and outspent his opponent nearly two to one. So other than Ted you know, Cruz, you mean among the statewides? Correct. On, among the statewides. Yeah. And, and he barely won. So, you know, those are the considerations the president is is looking at. And you got to put the best team on the field that can guarantee that a Republican is going to actually win this in the general. So you've talked to his team, but you haven't talked to him. Correct. Do you have your flight booked for Mar-a-Lago on June 3rd? <laughs> uh, I'm checking availability on a plane. You've been listening to Point of Order a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, George P. Bush, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, the Jackson Walker Law Firm, the Mach 1 Group, Texas 2036, Texas State Technical College, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, Tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.